Okay. We're, today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Martin Luther originally launched his protest against the Catholic Church over the issue of indulgences. Indulgences were these uh, pieces of paper that were being sold by Catholicism. Uh, basically, they were making the Pope's making money to build uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in, in Rome. And Luther wanted a debate. You could see what Luther did here way back in 1517. He nailed the 95 theses or arguments to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany there. Because he wanted a debate. And he finally got a real debate, and it was held in Leipzig, Germany. For several months, Luther debated Rome's premier theologian. And over the course of that debate, Luther declared the, the, the Reformation teaching of sola scriptura. That's Latin for only scripture. It is the unwavering commitment to the absolute authority of scripture or the Bible. Luther's writings and the reports of these debates ended up convincing the Pope at that time, who was Leo X, that this German monk was a heretic. Now, a heretic was not a term of endearment. Uh, he was basically saying that, that he was a false teacher. And so the, the date and the time was set for the ultimate showdown. The year was 1521. The place was the imperial diet. No, that's not where you pick and choose what food you're going to eat. Uh, that diet just meant it was a meeting, and it was held in Worms, or as you might say, Worms, Germany. The meeting at Worms is one of those moments in history I, I wish I could have been there, and, and, and many Christians wish they could have seen this firsthand. It makes a good movie, and they, they have you haven't seen them, they're worth watching. But here, imagine Luther here at uh, this Diet of Worms, or the meeting in Worms, Germany. He was just adorned in simple monk's clothing, as you can see in this someone's painting rendition of the Diet. And he's standing there before, and as well as against, all of these princes and nobles. There was cardinals, priests. They're all wearing all their, their fancy clothing of their office. On the throne sat a 21-year-old, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. Luther's books were spread out on a table before him. He thought he was going for a debate. But when he got there, he found out otherwise, he was commanded to recant his writings and to recant his views on things like sola fide, faith alone is the instrument of one's salvation. He was told to recant sola scriptura. It is scripture alone that is the authority. Luther was kind of taken back by this, didn't quite know what to say. And so Luther asked for a day to reconsider. And fortunately he was granted it. So he spent the night in prayer, and he appeared the next day before the Diet. And he delivered the famous speech. I, I hope you know this speech. It's amazing. Uh, it's one of those things I, I think the Holy Spirit just gave him courage, gave him the words to say, and he said this. Here's Luther's words. I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. God miraculously saved his life. He thought he was going to get burnt at the stake by saying that. But God had other plans for Luther, and he walked out to live another day. But I want to ask this question. Why is... Sola Scriptura, so important. What's so big about the authority of Scripture? And should you and I be committed to the absolute authority of Scripture? To answer that question, 
I, I want you to look here at, to me, one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture. Let's go to God's Word to see what God has to say about this important subject. In 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. The Bible says, But as for you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So here's the main idea from our text today, that every Christian must keep on learning and living God's Word. And every preacher of the Word must do so faithfully. Again, every Christian must keep on learning and living God's Word, and every preacher of the Word of God must do so faithfully. That's combining those texts today. Now this text here teaches us two ways to live a godly life in days of difficulty. You are in difficult days and have been. Paul talks about it here. Since his day, it's been days of difficulty. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Because he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We are in these times of difficulty. So, how do we live a godly life in times of difficulty? Well, notice, uh, notice what he says in verse 12. This is something you can be assured of in verse 12, because it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you're not likely to get burned at the stake. But if you live a godly life, God says you will be persecuted. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to live a godly life in times of difficulty? Two points, two ways that the text gives us. First of all, we have a command here, and notice the command says to continue in the Scripture. Key verb of verse 14 is the word continue. Now, those of you who love Greek, this is a present active imperative verb. A present active imperative verb. For those of you who don't know what that means, it, imperative just means the action here, continue, is a command. It's not an option. It's something you must do. When you see active, it just means that's something you do. It's not the Holy Spirit doing this to you. There are verbs like that, but this is one you do. You must continue. And when you see present, it means it's a continuous thing. You do this continually. So you can combine all three of those concepts together, and here's what you get. That you must continually continue in the Scripture. You must continually continue in the Scripture. Now, why? <laughs> I know, you're asking that question. I know what you're thinking. Why should I continue in the Scripture? What is so important about the Scripture that I need to continue in it? All right? Scripture gives you two things to think about here. Number one, Scripture provides instruction for salvation. It tells you how you can be saved. How do you know you have eternal life? Where your eternal destiny is. Because look at verse 15. Because verse 15 says, talking about Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So my friends, do you you understand what's going on here? Do you understand the source of saving faith? The source of truth is the Word of God. It is the Bible. So, putting this... If I was to make a math equation out of this verse, here's what it would look like. So you have... You have the truth of Scripture plus faith in Christ Jesus plus the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what that equals when you put those three things together? You get something that leads to spiritual life. Spiritual life is a combination of the the truth of Scripture and your faith in Christ alone coming where do, where, where do you get the ability to have faith in Christ? The Holy Spirit enables you to do that. And so how does this happen? Well, usually it's the same way it happened for Timothy. See, God often uses people in our lives to, to lead us to Christ, to show us Christ. Praise God, Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother. You can read about them earlier in the book here, but... The Word is often presented by human witnesses, and that is often God's plan for reaching people with the gospel. And Timothy had the blessing of hearing the Word, hearing the Scriptures through his family. So I ask you, how are you doing this in this area? Are you a conduit, a tool in God's hand to share the Scriptures with your family, with your friends, with your workmates, with your fellow church members. Let's be a tool. Let's be a conduit that God uses, a human witness of God's plan for reaching people with the gospel. Because Scripture provides the instruction for their salvation. You know what Romans says, right? Faith comes by what? By hearing the Word of God. Not our wisdom. Not the popes, not church tradition or whatever else you want to add to the list. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So, since Scripture is providing the instruction for salvation, that's why we need to continue in the Scriptures. That's why we need to proclaim them. We need to teach them. We need to pass them on. But there's a, there's a second reason. Scripture provides instruction for sanctification. Now, sanctification, that big theological word, just means you're, you're set apart from your sin unto God. It's a process where you are being conformed into the image of Christ. How is this happening? How does this happen? Well, verse 16 tells us Scripture is inspired by God. It's inspired by God. Notice my Bible says here that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, We get that word inspiration coming from, it's God-breathed. And so the focus here is on the authority of God's written word. Why does the Bible have authority? Why do I believe in sola scriptura? Why did the reformers believe in sola scriptura? Why Why were they willing to die over this issue? Well, God is the source. And that's the idea here when it says it is God-breathed. God breathe. He, he's the source of the very words. Now, how much of Scripture actually comes from God? What does it say? It says what? All Scripture is inspired of God. It's all breathed out by God. And by the way, that means the words are inspired of God. Not just thoughts, but words. That also means the teachings are inspired and they are without error. Now, hopefully you understand the Bible is not a, it's not a science book. It's, it's not a poetry book. It's not a geography book. It's, it, it, it's a lot of things the Bible is not. But when the Bible speaks on those issues, it is authoritative and without error and inspired. It also means, when it mentions the Scripture here, it's talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not just the New Testament. It includes all the way from Genesis to Malachi as well. They're inspired and without 
error. How is this possible? Well, God divinely supervised the accurate recording of this, this word, this truth, and he used divinely chosen people to do so. Now, in the Old Testament, many of them were, were prophets. Some of them were, were kings, like King David. New Testament, most of them were apostles, or uh, some of them were closely associated with the apostles, people who actually knew Jesus and talked with Jesus and taught by Jesus. And so it's, a, it's important to understand it. It is Scripture itself that is inspired by God, not those prophets and apostles. They're not the ones who are inspired. Notice it's all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so that means uh, when speaking or writing apart from God's revelation, uh, those men's thoughts were fallible. In fact, we have some of the fallible recordings of some of what they said, right? Just take the Apostle Peter, for example. He said a lot of silly, foolish things that are recorded in Scripture. Okay? And and everything else those guys did uh, outside of God's revelation were fallible. But when God gave them their thoughts and those words, those things were infallible. We also need to understand that uh, they were not inspired in the same sense we commonly think of the word inspired. <laughs> okay, uh, we often think of this as uh, you know some people get inspired in extraordinary ways to make a piece of art or uh, some literary genius uh, or or some musical genius of of some way, and and we say, wow, they must have really been inspired to write that or paint that. That is not what we're talking about here, okay? Uh, those, are, those are all human means. We're talking about divine God means here. And so we praise God that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The Scripture, we need to continue in Scripture because, one, it's, it's providing the instruction for salvation, and two, it's providing instruction for our sanctification. It, it's conforming us into the image of Christ. And so we've seen the inspiration of God, but have a, have a look at verse 16 as well. That we also see Scripture is profitable. It's profitable. How is it providing a, a sanctification? Because it is profitable. What's it profitable for? Well, for four ways. And so the focus here in this section is it's on the sufficiency of God's Word. God's Word is sufficient. It is more than enough for us. Now, how is it Profitable. Number one, notice it's profitable for teaching. Now, what, what, is, what is this all about? Well, it's Scripture tells you what to believe, what you need to believe. It is profitable for reproof. It, it teaches you what not to believe. I'll explain this in a moment. But it is profitable for correction. It tells you what not to do. It's profitable for training. It tells you what you need to do. So, in other words, you combine those two ideas together. It tells you how to think and what you need to do. Okay? What you need to believe, and what you, how you are to act. What is your conduct in a way that is to be holy and godly and pleasing to God. Another way you could say these four is the teaching is, is telling you what is right. The reproof is telling you what is not right. The correction is, well, hey, how do I get right then? Since I'm not right, how do I get right? And the training is, okay, how do I stay right? Okay, there's different ways of looking at those words. Those are the four ways that Scripture is profitable for you. And that's why you need to continue in it. Now, how does this actually work in practice? Well, this morning we learned something about quieting or noisy souls. We, we saw that there was these stabilizing truths in the scriptures that help quiet our noisy souls. If we meditate on the right content, then we'll have a quiet, peaceful heart. For example, we we see that scripture teaches us that God is always good and God is always great. That is true. And so, the scripture comes along and then it reproves our unbelief. Uh, The scriptures correct the error in our thinking, it, 
It shows that worry and fear are sin. It trains us then to trust God. And so a Christian who studies the Bible and then applies and continues in what they're learning and they're growing in their holiness and godliness, you know what's going to happen to you if you do that? You're going to avoid a lot of pitfalls in this world. God doesn't tell you what to do and not do because he hates you. (laughs) He loves you. He is a good God. He's always good. He's doing it for his honor and glory and for your good. He's going to protect you. So what do you believe about God? Well, I hope you believe he's good and great. Third point to consider here about Scripture is that Scripture is equipping it's equipping you, as verse 17 says, that, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Of course, the man of God there is obviously talking about someone like Timothy or a Paul. But uh, every Christian should be this man of God, so to speak. You, you should be one who is a person of God, if you will, a, And the idea here in the word complete, it means you're to be in fit shape. You are to be in fit condition, in shape, to do what God wants you to do. By the way, there is no suggestion here whatsoever uh, of sinless perfection. In this life, you will never attain sinless perfection. That that is not what it means. But implied here, here is you are fit for God's use. You're the right tool, if you will, in God's hand. Some of you who use tools, you you ever go and get the wrong tool? How frustrating that is. You you think you got the right tool to do the job, you find out it's the wrong tool, and it's useless. I mean, it's a good tool for some jobs, but just not for that job. Right? It's the, you know, it's wrong size, you know, you're trying to undo a nut or something, and it's, you know, it's too big, and, oh, like, you, you, or you grab Imperial when you meant to get metric and oh, <laughs> whatever, right? It's the wrong tool for the job. God's saying he's going to make you the right tool for the job. You're going to be fit. You're going to be in shape. You're going to be in right condition for this. Equipped, by the way, has a similar meaning to that. But what does the God-breathed scripture do? Well, the word of God equips believers. Why? So that you can live a life that pleases God. So you can do the work that God wants you to do. And so, the the better you know Scripture, the better you know your Bible, the better you're going to be able to live and work for God, aren't you? You're going to be a useful tool in His hand. Now, the purpose of Bible study is not just to understand doctrines or to be able to defend the faith. You can you know, bash people over the head with your Bible. (laughs) That's not the point. Now, the ultimate purpose is equipping of the believers who who actually read it, who study it, memorize it. It's the Word of God that equips God's people to do the work of God. How are you going to know what the work of God is? And then when you're doing it, how how are you going to be that that sharp tool that is able to, to do the work efficiently? Well, it's the Word of God that equips God's people to do that work. And so, my friends, what we have seen here is obviously a high view of Scripture. Every word, every teaching, the Old and the New Testament, it's, it's all breathed out by God. It's inspired. It is without error. That's a high view of Scripture. And if you have a high view of Scripture, then it's going to naturally lead to the next point here that Paul's making It's going to lead to this point of a high view of preaching. If you have an accurate view of Scripture, then you're going to have an accurate view of preaching. Let's talk about preaching, because the second way to live a godly life in these times of difficulty is preach the Scripture. Not all of you are paid to be preachers of Scripture. You, you, You might say, well, what does this have to do with me? Well... You may not be paid to be a preacher of the Word of God. That's fine. That's not for everybody. But you need to understand these truths so that you know 
what to look for in a preacher of the word so that you can defend the word, you can help those who are faithful to the word, you can, you can point out the error of false teachers who aren't preaching the word, so you know what a healthy church is, because healthy churches preach the word. This will help you to spot false teachers, help you to spot the, the wolves in sheep's clothing, even if you're not an official preacher of the word. So let me show you from the word of God here of how to destroy the church. This is so important because churches are destroyed because of this issue right here. Verse 2, there is a lack of the preaching of the word. Verse 2 says, preach the word. So here's the steps. Follow these steps. Step number one, how do you kill the church? It starts with a rejection of truth. You reject the truth, you're headed down a dangerous path. Look at verse 4, because it says, they will turn away from listening to truth. Wow. So here is where the downward slide starts. Beware, my friend, don't let yourself... Climb the stairs of this slide. Don't even get on the slide. Don't reject the truth. And Paul warns Timothy about this here. And so the first step in destroying a church is turning away from what is true. It's losing interest. You're starting on this path of apathy of truth. Losing the interest in the truth that God has revealed. You grow weary of what God says is true. What was once a love of truth can become a dislike. It can become a disgust toward the truth. Once was something you maybe even hated. You hated error at one point. Uh, can become an interest in someone's life. And then eventually your heart is hardened toward God and His truth. So it starts with rejection of truth. Step two is, then you reject the truth-tellers. You reject the truth tellers. Because verse, verse 3 talks about this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So as they turn away from the truth, then guess what they do to those who are preaching the truth? <laughs> well, they're not, they're not going to like that. God's ministers who are preaching the truth get pushed away, get rejected, get criticized get fired. I know some. So Paul tells Timothy in this day, hey, they will not endure healthy teaching. And it's not that people won't know what is true, but they, they're not going to hate these very people who proclaim the truth. And so the very teachers that maybe once drew them are now repulsing them. You can see this happen over and over but anyway, step number three is then, after you reject the truth, reject truth tellers, then you embrace false teachers. That's what verse three is telling us. See, they, they have itching ears, and so what are they doing? They're accumulating to themselves. They're embracing these false teachers to themselves who are going to suit their own passions. So after a church has rejected the truth, and those who teach the truth... This is what happens next. They embrace the false teachers. So notice the Bible talks about them having these, the people in the churches have itching ears. And so as these people become hardened in their sin, and they're growing in the rebellion to God, they, want to be, they don't want to be led by a truth teller. They don't want to be led by someone who preaches the word. They want someone who's going to Tickle their ears. Going to tell them nice things that they want to hear. You know, help, helping whatever, you know, is, is tickling their fancy, so to speak, right? And so Paul uses a great word picture here to describe this idea. I, I love it. Itching ears. The idea is these are ears. What does that mean, you say? Well, it's ears that want to be tickled by novel things, things that might sound respectable to our society, 
These are things that are pleasant to a godly wor- or godless world. Sorry, they want to hear about God's love, not God's justice and God's wrath. They don't want to hear about their sin. They want to hear about how wonderful they are and how they can have their best life now. That's what people want a lot of times. Praise God, you're not that way. But and so what what happens is soon they they. If that's what they want, then they have these itching ears. They're going to gather these kind of teachers who then justify the the turning away from the truth, who's going to validate them in their rebellion against God. So, Step number three is embracing false teachers. Step four is, how do you kill a church? Well, well then you embrace the false teaching. You embrace false teaching. You love this, this heresy. So they've rejected the truth and the truth tellers. And they, they, they go and they, they find these, these pastors and these preachers who are, gonna, who are itch and tickle their ears. And then they wander off into myths, verse 4 says. They wander off into myths. The, the idea is here they're embracing full-out error. The liberal, the mainline liberal denominations are like this. They, they deny the inspiration of Scripture. They deny the virgin birth of Christ. They deny that, and so forth, you know, that, that Jesus arose from the grave, right, and so forth. And they're not preaching the word, and that's why these mainline liberal denominations are dying. And they become hardened in their sin. And they now believe error is, is a good thing, and it's actually true. They become so deluded and rebellious, they celebrate what God hates, and then, and then they do it all in the name of God, saying, I'm a Christian. And they wander off, and they're just like a dumb sheep. Notice God describes us like sheep. We're dumb sheep. We wander away from the good shepherd, and when we do that, we get ourselves in serious trouble. <laughs> Sometimes sheep die. Because they do silly, dumb things. They're not following the good shepherd. We need to follow the good shepherd. Listen to his voice. Let me just illustrate by telling you about a dead church. Now, this is a true story, by the way. You can find this on the internet. Uh, this church actually died because it did what verse 4 is talking about. It wandered off into myths. And the evidence of that miss of those myths is very plain to, to see. For example, this church had a hymn book, and in their hymn book, they had a song called "Mother and God," which said, "Here's what the, the the hymn said: Mother and God, to you we sing. Wide is your womb, warm is your wing." Right. So you start singing heresy, and then you start believing heresy and false teaching. The website of this dead church featured a video about a pastor undergoing gender reassignment, and he had full support of the people in the church. The literature explicitly denied that Christ is the only way to God. Here's what their literature of the church said, quote, God works in our world by a mysterious spirit that knows no distinction at the doorway of a Christian chapel, whether it's Buddhist, Hindu, or a Sikh temple, Muslim mosque or a Jewish synagogue. There you go. There's the slide to destruction of a local church. And so 2,000 years ago, approximately, Paul wrote to Timothy and told him exactly how this church and, and, and so many churches like it would die. You want to destroy a church? Do this. You start rejecting the truth. Eventually, you start embracing false teachers, you embrace false teaching, and you're dead. Unfortunately, God has given us some good news. You say, man, thank you, I need some good news. Uh, Well, God gave Timothy a charge how to keep his church from experiencing this kind of destruction. How do you defend yourself in 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 these difficult days? How can I be godly in difficult times? Well... Let's talk about how to protect the church from destruction. Verse 2, 
Paul gives a solution here, and he just says, uh, of chapter 4, that is, he just says, preach. Preach is a command. It means proclaim. It means you're, you're announcing something. You're announcing the truth. So preaching is this idea of where you are persuasive de- declaring what the Bible says. You're declaring this truth. Why are you doing this? It's to save sinners and equip believers. And therefore, the church that remains faithful to God here is the church that remains faithful to the Word of God. The healthy church is a preaching church. A healthy church preaches, notice it says, the Word, the Logos, the written Word. Notice preachers aren't to preach their ideas, their stories. No, preachers are to preach the Word to illustrate but too many preachers it's all about them well one of the great reformers was John Calvin he believed scripture was God breathed he believed it was profitable and useful and and was able to equip God's people and according to Calvin's translator and biographer a guy by the name of T.H.L. Parker he said this he was given some statistics on John Calvin he said quote On Sunday, John Calvin took always the New Testament except for a few psalms on Sunday afternoon. During the week, it was always the Old Testament. He took five years to complete the book of Acts. He preached 46 sermons on Thessalonians, 186 sermons on Corinthians, 86 on the pastoral epistles, 43 sermons on Galatians, 48 on Ephesians. He spent five years on his harmony of the Gospels, and then he died, never finished. And that was just his Sunday work. And during the weekdays in those five years, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, 123 on Genesis, end quote. Uh, By the way, I hope you're not expecting 123 sermons on Genesis. Uh, Some people can get away with that and have more ability than others. So, here's somebody who understood that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable and is able to equip you and make you complete. So, let's look at Paul's instruction for what kind of preaching actually glorifies God and in the process can protect you and the church from destruction. Well, here, here's what the Bible says. Number one, preach responsibly. Preach responsibly. Paul uses some very serious words here. He he gives a charge to Timothy in verse 1, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And then he gives the command in verse 2, preach the word. How do you preach? You need to look for a preacher who preaches responsibly. It would do us all good to occasionally reflect on the fact that one day we will all face God. Unbelievers and believers will all face God. Your works will be judged. And the realization would encourage us to do our work carefully and faithfully before this judge of the universe. It would also deliver us from the fear of man. (laughs) If you have the correct fear of God... Uh, Think about this. After all, who is your final judge? God is. And finally, the realization that God will one day judge our works encourages us to keep going through these times of difficulty. See, if we're faithful, God will reward us. So preach responsibly. Number two, preach biblically. It says preach biblically. The Word. That's the Bible. That's the Scripture. And so it's not enough to just simply preach. God wants us to preach the Word. Think about it. What, what else is there to preach anyway? I can't imagine preaching anything else. I have nothing of value to add. Really? The preacher's goal is not to entertain you. 
It's, it's not about style. It's not about amusing you to death. It's not about the preacher's cleverness or his humor or his novelty. Is he you know, a charismatic kind of a personality? That's not what it's about. But sadly, though, preaching is, is being discarded. It's being downplayed in favor of all kinds of newer means. You know, for example, there's all kinds of drama going on in churches, and they'll have these dances, and they've they got to have comedy or pop psychology or some other kind of entertainment. New methods seem to be more effective to a lot of big churches these days, and, and they do tend to draw big crowds. But whatever pulls in people, you, you need to recognize, whatever pulls in people is, is accepted without critical analysis as, as good. Be, well, wow, that's dangerous. What is, you know, that's the Bible, we can just call that pragmatism. Pragmatism is a serious threat to the church. This idea that the end justifies the means. What, you know, the, the end result, in other words... Uh, is good, then it doesn't mean doesn't matter how I got there. That's just that's what pragmatism is. See, you should never judge something based on whether it works or not. Uh, the means are also important. Success must not be measured by how large a congregation is. How does God measure success? God measures success by faithfulness to His Word. Preaching is only as powerful as its faithfulness is to the Bible. There is no innate power in, in the form of preaching. I hope you understand that. The, the power in preaching actually comes from the source of the preaching, not the preacher. I believe the most faithful way to preach, by the way, is to preach expositorily or expositionally. Ex means out, so you're... You're pulling out of the text what God has revealed in the text. You're ensuring the point of the text actually becomes the point of the sermon. Right? It's not, I'm not inserting my ideas into the text. And so more than any other form of preaching, what this does, by the way, it constrains the preacher to God's Word. So that the preaching is coming from the Word and not man's wisdom. And by the way, not only that, it allows the congregation... You, then you can ensure that every word is drawn faithfully from God's word. You can be like those Bereans. Search the scriptures daily to see if these things are really so. You have your Bible. Look at it. Open it. Study it. Memorize it. I love what Martin Luther said when he was talking about the Reformation. Here's what he said, quote, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all how true it is. It was just a tool, just a conduit. Number three, how do we preach? Preach persistently. Preach persistently. Verse two talks about that you need to be ready in season and out of season. The idea here is this is a call for perseverance. The duty is a never-ending task. Preaching is to be done regardless of of the climate of our culture or the times. Sadly, right now, preaching is something that is out of season. It used to be churches had Sunday evening services, had midweek services. In the Reformation, people would go virtually every day to hear guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And they weren't short sermons either. So right now, preaching words out of season. Notice that, that, that phrase, be ready. The idea here literally means to stand beside. It has the idea of the preacher is eager and ready. It was often used to describe a military soldier who would always stand at his post and he was prepared for duty. He would not sleep. He was on guard doing his duty. So a faithful preacher is, I guess I liken it to the, the Roman soldier at Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted. They found a Roman soldier who stayed at his post. He was at the city gate. He died at the city gate as he was consumed by all of the ash. 
and everything that came out of Mount Vesuvius. He did his duty. So preaching comes and goes. And there are times when preaching is loved and preaching is hated. But a faithful preacher stands by his post and does his duty persistently. Expository preaching comes and goes as well. (laughs) Uh, So-called experts, by the way, tell us that uh, this expository preaching, you know, you, you take a book of the Bible, say like Genesis, and you, you just draw out of the text what, what God has put there, and you, you, you preach the whole counsel of God. Some, some people say that, that uh, this form of preaching is going to cause a church to collapse. You're going to destroy the church with that kind of preaching. But this kind of faithful word-based preaching is to be done whether it's in season or out of season. In other words, the idea is you do it whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Number four, preach practically. Preacher must preach practically. Notice verse two goes on, says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Notice two of the words are negative. One of them is positive. There's many implications from that. Some people say preaching should never be negative. Don't step on people's toes. You've got to itch their, tickle their ears. Well, God says no. Out of two, out of two out of the three words are negative. You say, well, what's the point here? Well, all valid ministry needs to be balanced. You need negative and positive. It shouldn't just be negative. It shouldn't just be positive. It needs negative and positive. It shows that preaching is to have a practical dimension as well. So it's not just a balanced ministry, it's, it's practical. It's able to reprove you, rebuke you. Preaching teaches us about God. It does more than that, but that's one of the things it does. It teaches us how you can honor God. It teaches you how to live a godly life, a holy life. It teaches you how to live for God's glory. By the way, knowing about God is good but it's insufficient. See, preaching is meant to save souls. It's meant to transform people's lives. It's to spur us on in holiness. But our preaching is, notice what it says, it is to reprove. It is to confront you. It is to correct your false doctrine, your false ways of thinking. It is to rebuke, confront, correct sinful patterns of living as well. It is to exhort. It is to train. It is to encourage you to honor God. So preaching is, well, let's let's use a military way of thinking. Preaching is not just uh, lobbing holy hand grenades into people's lives and hoping it hits the mark. You know what a hand grenade is, right? See those guys in the military, they pull the pin, throw it at the enemy, right? No, preaching is not just, I'm not trying to throw holy hand grenades into you and hoping it does something. But preaching should be encouraging people. It should be caring for people. It should be stepping on your toes too. Number five, preach, preach patiently. While doing all this, Paul says preach patiently. In verse two, because he says reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. With complete patience. So there is to be an element of, pre, uh, of patience in preaching. Uh, the pastor has to be patient. Uh, it's, it's easy for a pastor to grow weary in well-doing, even to grow weary in the form of preaching even itself. Uh, preachers shouldn't lose confidence in the, the goodness and the effectiveness of the preaching of the word. You need to encourage your preacher in this. It's very hard. Very hard. So a preacher needs to preach with great patience to his congregation. And so the best teachers are ones who are kind, who are forbearing, who are gracious. Uh, the best preachers are ones who know their audience, who are able to endure for long times. Sometimes 40, 50, 60 years, sanctification is a long process. 
need to be able to encourage people in their growth, doing it week after week, year after year. The best preaching models the patience of God as God is, is patient with you and He is with me. Whew, thank God for that. The last point we see in verse 2 is to preach doctrinally. Preach doctrinally or theologically because it talks about teaching there in verse 2. So not only do it with patience, but it is to be done with teaching. So our preaching is to be, in other words, it, it, it is to be full of Christian truth, to be full of biblical theology. And so Paul's insisting here, people who turn away from God, they will not endure this healthy teaching, this sound doctrine, which, by the way, is the very thing Paul is calling for here. So the best preaching is consistent with sound doctrine. It's teaching healthy theology. This kind of preaching is not what I call sermonettes for Christianettes. <laughs> right? You know what a sermonette for Christianette? You know, it's the, uh, the sermonette is, uh, let me, let me, I'll talk about my life for five or ten minutes and give you a moral to the story, and then we all go home. And you end up with a bunch of churches with unbelievers in the process No, God says preach his whole counsel, which is drawn from his word, preach the word. Looking to a future in, of course, which people would not tolerate the truth, what does Paul do with Timothy here? Paul tells Timothy to remain faithful to his central calling. Timothy was a leader in the church, a pastor. He was called to lead the church with not his ideas, not with pop psychology or some novel way, but with the Word of God. It was Paul's charge to Timothy 2,000 years ago, and today it's the same charge going to you and to me. So as God's people, who all of us living in difficult times, we're living in in the age of itching ears, what do we need to do? You and I need to be, remain confident in and committed to the faithful, week-by-week, preaching of God's precious Word. So what did Paul tell you to do? What did the Holy Spirit tell you to do? Two ways to be faithful. You and I must continue in the Scriptures, and we must firmly believe in, in the preaching of the Scriptures. We must encourage that. We must allow it to happen. We must discourage false teaching that doesn't come from the word that's what god wants us to do in these days of difficulty let's pray heavenly father thank you for the clear instruction here may we be people who believe in sola scriptura may we understand the importance of why sola scripture is so important and what the reformers were fighting over what is it may we be grounded on the authority of Scripture. And so may we allow it to be preached. May we release your word into our lives, in our church, and in this world. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for men and women and children who are faithful even unto death. Never compromised. Never recanted. May we stand on their shoulders, so to speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.